The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back to week four, everybody. Usually for week four, uh, the intro class, we take a deeper dive, bring interest to, because it actually is interesting, but what actually gets in the way of the continuity of present moment awareness? And uh, what is it about our habits of getting lost in thought that are self-reinforcing? Like, what is that feedback mechanism? There's something about the juiciness of self-centered drama that keeps the mind addicted to self-centered drama. And then when we, like we can do now, we just drop into the moment, we say, right? With the body sitting, And it's weird how neutral experience, like just hearing the sound of the blower or just feeling the body sitting, it's almost like an existential threat, neutrality. It's just interesting to to illuminate that unconscious pattern that we've gotten into where we can get a sense of this mostly unconscious addiction to the intensity of drama. Worrying about the future, worrying about something we did in the past, worried about our hangnail, worried about what I'm gonna eat when I go home. I mean, it's like, is there an end? No, we can, we're really, the mind, habit-based mind is really good at generating drama. So um, we might think that in terms of our meditation practice or daily life practice, that the tendency, you know, even the addictive tendency of our mind to seek out the intensity of drama, you know, so animated by greed or animated by aversion, um, we might think that that's a problem, but the whole point for us isn't to be perfect as much as it is to understand, to see clearly that tendency to get lost in thought and to have you know, the interruption of our continuity of present moment awareness. So just being curious about well, what's that about. So in our sit tonight, let's, be, let's resolve to be a good student What does get in the way of the continuity of present moment awareness? And instead of feeling frustrated when you get distracted, get interested. Like, in that natural process of distraction, get interested in it. What's the bait that the mind, the habit mind, you know, dangles in a sense, you know, like a little shiny object, Think about this, worry about that, speculate, compare, 
analyze, judge, criticize, right? And it's like, what will the mind, the habit-based mind, grab a hold of? And grabbing a hold of, like getting lost in thought, means there's always mental activity. But being lost in thought means there's mental activity, but there's none of that wisdom, that uh, wisdom awareness, that's aware that thinking is being known. So we don't want to turn thinking into the bad guy. The problem is forgetfulness, not thinking, or any kind of pattern that might show up in our experience. We just want to, as much as we can, recognize this is being known. And the, the really important, I know it can, I've said this before, but it's really important for you personally to explore how potent this you know, way of being, this way of relating to our experience, this is being known. There's something about that frame, like right now, this experience, that you're having, not the experience I'm having, it's something being known. So if the, what's predominant for you is the seeing, seeing is being known. If what happens to be predominant right now for you is kind of how you're cognizing yourself here in the room, okay, thinking is being known. Or feeling the body sitting is being known. There's something how that way of framing and understanding the present moment, it strips away so much, so much presumption, basically. You know, so much of what, in a Buddhist sense, in the, Buddhist, the sense of the Buddhist teachings, what allows us to be skillful in life, and, you know, the opposite, what causes us to be unskillful in life, is just a question of whether the heart, mind, is in alignment with the way it is, or whether it's not. And this, whether you like that particular verbal formulation or not, but one way or another, we have to realize that every moment is as simple as something is being known. And when we realize it's that simple, and we actually recognize that truth, this is being felt, this is being known, there's a kind of groundedness, there's a kind of stability, and the possibility of a real intimacy that allows for skillfulness. So that's like, in terms of the interruptions, what, what interrupts the continuity of present moment awareness, and then you catch it that the mind is thinking or worrying or whatever it is, the way back isn't so much, even though we do this, like bring the attention back to the meditation object, that, that is a move we use. But more important is when you're distracted to recognize that that activity, whatever it is, 
chasing your own tail, worrying about something, whatever that mental activity is that you're distracted by, to realize that's something being known. That applies to any moment. It doesn't matter what the moment, you could be doing something terrible, this is being known, or doing something beautiful, this is being known. Does that make sense? And you see, it strips away the story. And this is like the foundational insight. So obviously we're hearing it now as an idea. I'm conveying this idea to you. And then you hear this idea. And then you, the key is you remember this idea. And you got to play with it. We call that contemplation or reflection. You're to reflect on this idea that I'm, it's really the Buddha's idea that I'm conveying to you, that our experience, our subjective experience is always, ever, always something being known something being felt. It's never more complicated than that. So if you think of a really, you know, confusing or complicating time in your life, it was just a succession of moments of something being known. Confusion feels like this. Ambiguities like this. Frustrations like this. And really beautiful, peaceful moments. Peacefulness is like this. It's something being known being felt. It's not more than that, it's not less than that. So it's a way, I guess you could say it's a way of deconstructing delusion, right? And grounding, aligning the heart-mind, aligning our understanding with the way it is. Subjectively, that's what experience is. It's always something being known. We're seeing something amazing, you know, we're on the north rim of the Grand Canyon looking a mile down, something being known. Or we see aliens come from outer space, something being known. Freaking out, freaking out is being known. Ordinary moment, sitting at home, sitting on the couch is being known. Sticking your neck out and signing up for a Buddhist introduction to mindfulness meditation class and actually showing up is being known. It's like this. And we're not so interested in like the objective truth because our practice is all about the way it is and the way it is is always our subjective experience. That's all we have. Right? And our subjective experience is always something being known. And it's not even like we can separate those two things, the something that is being known or felt. Right? It's always this. And this is something being known. And the key to practice is valuing that so we keep that in mind. Therefore, we're less and less swept away by our mental interpretation and judgments, and the monsters we concoct, and the hope we concoct. There's a famous uh, story in uh, Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, which arose, you know, later, you know, a thousand years after the time of the Buddha, 
when the teachings made it their way up to Tibet. And uh, it was a famous, kind of like a patron saint of Tibetan Buddhism, a person called Milarepa. And he, he became a really wise person. His practice unfolded beautifully. And, and uh, one of the understandings that arose in his heart, uh, and it's, it's told in a really kind of beautiful, ornate way, you know, in Tibet, they had sort of a shamanistic culture. Bonism is the sort of term for that type of shamanism. And then Buddhism eventually made its way up into Tibet. And so Tibetan Buddhism is a really beautiful, interesting combination of this shamanistic tradition and the Buddhist, pra Buddhist practices and teachings. But anyway, Milarepa, his understanding that got expressed and then, you know, passed down over the centuries was uh, something like, uh, on the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie awaiting. Because when we stay with this as being known, then if, we, if there's a moment of a lot of hope, excitement, excitement's being known. Right? It kind of neutralizes it. Or demon, you know, fear shows up about tomorrow or about something I did earlier. Fear is being known. So when we get attached, identified with the fear or the hope, then, like if we're identified with the hope, then we have something we have to protect. Or we get identified with the fear, then we have something we have to slay and win and manage and control or get rid of. And it's not that we don't do stuff in life to make our life better, to you know, move away from things that are dangerous or hard to be with. But it isn't about the story. The story is just what it is. So if I'm cold, coldness is being numb. It doesn't mean I don't get up to put a sweater on. It just means there's a clarity around Coldness is being known. And if there's something to do about it, well, no problem. Get up, put a sweater on, or turn the heat up. But if there's nothing you can do for whatever reason, then it remains. Coldness is being known. Sometimes it's very easy to um, do something to take care of ourselves, to eliminate unpleasantness, and sometimes there's not much we can do. can be helpful like in that uh, process where you notice like a lot of distractions and could be a repeated visitor. Some difficult thing happened today and it keeps showing up. You know, you're there with being present with your body and your sit or present with the breath coming in and going out. And then like the thought or the mental image memory presents itself and you start to think about it. And then three minutes later you realize that you've been distracted, you feel your body come back. And if that happens a few times, then you might want to name that. Just to normalize that distraction as something being known. Thinking about earlier today is being known. So if you want to verbalize it, you can. Uh, obviously, silently to yourself, thinking about 
that messy situation. <laughs> you know, it's nice. You don't need a long description, but if you need that kind of more uh, potent intervention, then name it with in a more descriptive way. Otherwise, it could be this is being known, or thinking is being known, or yucky feeling is being felt. If that's really what it's really about is the leftover feeling from that difficult interaction, right? Oh, yucky feeling is being felt. It's just this yucky feeling being felt. And you might need to repeat it a few times until wisdom gets really clear. Yeah, that's right. It is only this experience being known. It's an unpleasant experience being known. And you can do that. You can even be specific because getting into the underlying feeling, whether it's pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant, can be really helpful. Yeah, unpleasantness is being felt. Unpleasantness is being known. Can that be okay just to be aware that the unpleasant reverberations of something related or to something that happened earlier, but right now this is what's being known or felt? Can I be with this? Well, let me see. That's called good practice. Even though we're not with our primary meditation object, the breath, the whole body, hearing, whatever you work with as your primary meditation object. So let's see if in the guided sit tonight that we can learn, we can get interested in continuity and even more so in what interrupts the continuity of present moment awareness. And don't, don't fall into the habit of thinking that's a problem. It's a place of learning. We want to see that process of distraction and then the process of awareness. Present moment awareness is never far away. We could be like really in the weeds, lost in thought, you know, it seems like we're a million miles away from the present moment. Because we thought about somebody we met last week, then we imagine we become partners, and then we're in the middle of a terrible divorce. And then, you know, it it's, could be like 10 chapters in. <laughs> and then there's that sort of little inkling off the space of a wisdom awareness that's going, oh yeah, this is, you're, you're not meditating, you know, Maybe it has a little scolding voice. But in any case, whatever that... But right then, what we want is the deeper wisdom to go, this is being known. And immediately you're practicing again. You don't start practicing again when you're back with your meditation object. Simply acknowledging the distraction or whatever's left of the distraction as a mental bodily experience, you're right back with your practice. Oh yeah, this is what it's like now. This experience is being known. And uh, in the sit tonight, use that uh, language at, at least a few times, experiment, because some of you won't need or want to use mental noting or labels or like the phrases that I'm saying to communicate to you, like this is being known. But 
you won't know whether it's helpful unless you experiment, not just during your sits, but like tomorrow and the next few days, if you haven't already, play with using mental notes or a phrase to, re it's almost like you're um, operationalizing that wise voice of your practice. So that when you need that stronger intervention, you've had some practice. But a lot of times when, when there's already some confidence and momentum in the wisdom and awareness, present moment awareness, then you won't need a phrase. It will be mindfulness sort of kicks back in and that awareness, this is how it is, is there without you saying those words. This is how it is. And you might catch yourself, depending on your personality, overuses, overusing the phrases. And then just have that kind of forgiving, wise, serene smile, like, oh yeah, you're, you're kind of getting obsessive. This is how it is. This is how, you know, it's like either you're a control type and you're trying to control your experience by, no, I said this is how it is. <laughs> you know, or pleading with yourself, no, please, this is how it is. So a lot of these techniques get corrupted with our own, you know, emotional patterns of feeling like a failure or trying too hard, being controlling or whatever it might, whatever our particular temperament might be. It's going to show up, so don't worry about it. But it is good to experiment a little bit so you have a sense of the tools that can be used to help sustain this wisdom and awareness. The awareness is remembering the present moment, and the wisdom piece is that right understanding that it's just something being known, and it's not very personal. It's what in Buddhism we call nature. <laughs> so when we understand, oh yeah, this is being known, what comes with that understanding is that even something seemingly as personal as my thoughts, it, it's, and it's totally okay to say my thoughts, but actually that mental activity is not very personal. It is like nature. It's not different than nature. It unfolds because of causes and conditions, just like the meadow and the butterflies, you know, that kind of stereotypic picture of nature, that's unfolding due to causes and conditions, right? Why is it different in terms of our mental activity or anything? It's all nature. And there's no center to nature. You know, when we think about the environment of Minneapolis, where I live, there's no control tower. This is Minneapolis, just like for you and me. There's no mark, center, fixed center mark. It's just all these impersonal processes intersecting, interdependent, you know, like even within our own cognitive activity, there's just these different, it's not like one cognitive activity is me, right? It's like different voices. Uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Sushito, I think it was him, who said it's sort of like, I don't know, Chicago gets a bad rap, but it's, he says something like, it's like the Chicago City Council. You know, they've got, whatever, 20 people on the city council. They all have very strong personalities. And, it, and at any given moment, somebody's got the microphone. And they're, you know, blabbing or whatever. 
And then, you know, everyone else is trying to get the mic. And that's kind of like cognitive activity. Oh, yeah, okay. This guy's got the mic now. You know, the oh, poor me voice. Or the this is stupid voice. Or the rebel, like, you know, you can't make me, you can't make me be mindful. This is stupid. But our wisdom awareness doesn't have a problem with any particular pattern, personality pattern. Because with wisdom and awareness, it's like, but this is being known. Now it's like this. And then we have this training, working ground of our meditation anchor. So when there are no strong distractions, and we always come back to the body, or more specifically to the breathing process in the body, or for those who prefer being with hearing. And we use that to refresh and to strengthen, build the momentum, because it's a relatively neutral experience, our meditation anchors, right? So we don't have a big agenda. I mean, unless you've had asthma, uh, or do have asthma, you know, then maybe don't use your breath as your meditation anchor, because you might have some emotional baggage being intimate with your breath. So maybe use your whole body just the totality of the sitting body, not highlighting the sensation in the knee or this or that, but feeling the whole body together as an anchor. It's a very important muscle to strengthen when you're not just, when there aren't sort of baits, <laughs> seductive experiences being dangled in front of attention, then just know where you go back to. Okay, I'll be with the whole body sitting, the totality of the body. I'll be with the movement of the breath, whether that's the rising and falling of the belly, just feeling that physical movement, or the touching at the nostrils, or some combination of how you feel the physicality of the breathing process. There's not a right or wrong way, or hearing, like I said. And make it a really good friend. And you do that by not dominating or trying to control whether you're feeling the whole body, the physicality of breathing or hearing. It's not about controlling the experience. It's about hanging out with it and receiving. It's all about receptivity and relaxing and appreciating there's a pleasure in being intimate with something ordinary. It's the pleasure of not being pushed around by all the habits, the prompts to think about this and worry about that. So we need to cultivate that friendship. To, I mean, literally liking being with our meditation object. We have to have a love affair. And I know it sounds a little weird, like how could the breath be worthy of my attention or feeling the body sitting or being with hearing? But actually, with some practice, initially it's a bit of a leap of faith, but it isn't long before you start getting little tastes. It's so nice. The simplicity is nice, but the pleasure of that simplicity is subtle. So it doesn't stand out. So we can only follow that pleasure, building the moment of the concentration, when we're settled enough and interested enough to realize the simple truth, it is pleasant. 
non-distraction is pleasurable. And that that's like initially that's an essential insight because without it you won't keep doing your practice. If it's just a chore for you, we'll, we'll eventually abandon it. You know, even if you're a really disciplined type, you've got to see that there's something onward leading and that onward leading is pleasant in an inner sense. Trustworthy pleasure. And I've been mentioning all along how valuable it is to hear from people in terms of what you've been learning at home during your daily life practice of being mindful, but also, of course, during your formal sitting times, including tonight's sit, including anything that might be confusing about the talk I gave at the beginning, whether you're online or here in the room. Yeah, we just learned quite a bit from each other and so uh, people online, you can just raise your digital hand so I know that you have something to share. And people in the room, you can just raise your hand. We'll start with Gwen. Gwen, go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, everybody. Um, this is the first time I've taken formal training like this, and I'm also in the MBSR class. Uh, and while I've had a lot of different experiences with body scans and things, um, I really had this breakthrough this week and it really follows along with what you are saying tonight. Um, and another set of spiritual teachings, uh, a teacher said, the enemy is never the problem, but the opportunity. And these distractions really parallel what you were talking about. It's an opportunity. It's not, a, you know, and in, in my case, uh, what brought me to, to, all of this this time around is I'm in the first, as I've said before, the first physical pain of my life. And last week, after this teaching and MBSR the next day, I stopped running from those distractions and I gave them the attention because the distractions are always going to be present. And as you were alluding to earlier, it, it takes, I don't know about some power, but it diffuses the intensity and, and the, the struggle with them. Uh, and just understanding that that is something that wants to be heard and be known. And I've actually even seen a physical decrease in pain by probably maybe 20% uh, with the bones crumbling in my hands. But also my distress in general over irritations, traffic or whatever else, seems also to not last so long. So just by acknowledging, instead of acting like there's something wrong, it, 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 it's a big ship. It's yeah. great. Thanks for that beautiful testimonial, Gwen. Yeah, it is. And this corresponds with uh, one of the more famous little teachings from the Buddha, sometimes referred to as the second dart or the second arrow. Maybe some of you have heard of this. But the Buddha talks about our human existence, like we're going to get shot with an arrow. We're going to get stabbed with a dart. It's unavoidable, right? Because we run into difficult experience, whether it's a sight that's repulsive or a sound or a thought or sensation, pain in the body, emotional pain, physical pain. But what we do is when we experience something that's difficult, 
we often react in a way that creates another, you could say, a second arrow, a second dart, right? Like even that flinch, we're tensing up. It's understandable that that experience, the initial experience was unpleasant, but then we hate it, which is another contraction. And what Gwen was talking about is when we really observe that pattern, when we get the invitation, the instruction to simply acknowledge, oh yeah, it's like this now, this is being known, then it, it interrupts that second arrow. We're aware that when things are pleasant, oh yeah, it's pleasantness being known. And when things are unpleasant, unpleasantness is being known. But it creates a little gap or space where there's this possibility of not reacting to the unpleasantness by getting tight around it. That's the avoidable pain. Our tight reaction to pain is avoidable. Is pain avoidable in life? No. Even, you know, in our relationships with our loved ones, sometimes they're going to hurt us. You know, they're going to act in ways or whatever that causes pain. But to, for me, to create a story in my mind, this person never loves me, never the way, you know, can't be, I could create a really toxic, painful story about my relationship with child, parent, lover, whatever, right? And that negative story that I've constructed and I'm identified with could be a hundred times more painful than the unpleasantness of an interaction I had with the person in the morning. Do you know what I mean by that? As opposed to we have an unpleasant interaction with someone we care about, and because it's unpleasant, it hurts, right? That's what that means, unpleasant. It hurts. Oh, but, but wisdom and awareness can go, yeah, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes in our interpersonal relationships with people we care about, it really hurts. How do I know that? Because it really hurts now. This is how it is. It hurts. And if we have that capacity that Gwen was saying to be interested, like to be willing to be intimate with the reality, oh yeah, it hurts like this now. Or it could be the opposite. It's really nice now. But it's just nice. Or it's just unpleasant. We're not making it more or less than what it actually is. And like when suggests in, in their testimonial, it makes a huge difference. And although we often talk about it highlighting working with unpleasant experience, the same principle applies to pleasant experience because we create a lot of drama around pleasant experience, like wanting it to last. This is so great. I hope it never changes. And all of a sudden, we've created suffering around what is a pleasant experience because we don't want it to end. Even something silly like we're watching a program and we're really enjoying it and then we happen to notice that there's only 10 minutes left. And it's like, oh, I don't want this to end. Or you're on vacation and you spend all your time worrying about an even better vacation. You know, how you can get back here next year or something like that. 
And it's like, oh, look at that. The body, the mind is tight. And that's that principle of the second arrow where we have an experience, it doesn't matter which kind, but the mind turns things, I mean, it basically we turn things into problems. Even pleasant experience is a problem because all of a sudden I'm wondering, how can I make it last? That's called a problem. As opposed to, this is going to change, this is going to end, and it's pleasant now, so I'm going to be intimate with the pleasantness, knowing that it will end and change. But right now it's pleasant. I don't need to be speculating. I could just know it's pleasant now, and whatever it is, like everything, it's ephemeral. It will change. Can that be okay? When it's really nice, but we know that it won't always be this way. Yeah, like some of us are pretty healthy right now, I hope. So can we be aware of the health without a wrongly, in a deluded way, imagining it's always going to be this way? It actually makes it able to appreciate things even more when we stay attuned to the truth of uncertainty. Thanks for getting us started, Gwen. Appreciate that. Other people in the room or online? What have you been learning in your practice? Yeah, do you mind coming and sitting here so people can hear you? And I'll hand you the, the mic. So I've been trying to stay mindful throughout my day and I'm finding the thing that I'm struggling with the most is the feeling that I am not being productive anymore. When I'm no longer mentally multitasking, and I'm guessing that like a lot of women and caretakers feel this as well, that like when I'm folding laundry, I need to make these plans. And while I'm walking the dog, I'm gonna solve this problem. And losing that time or feeling like I'm losing that time has been, this has brought up the most resistance out of anything since I've started sitting and trying to be mindful the whole day. I feel like I need to do that multitasking, otherwise she's not going to get done. Yeah, thanks so much. What's your name? Clarissa. Thanks, Clarissa. I, I'm guessing a lot of folks, myself included, relate to that phenomena. And um, I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is, th there is that uh, kind of chronic underlying feeling of not having enough time, uh, never getting done, always more to do. Um, and in that moment where you remember, so you're there doing something simple, but, but there's part of what's there in the moment is an ongoing, repeated story. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. You know, it's almost like there's a way of keeping our to-do list alive in the mind as a kind of ongoing story. And this, is, this would be a really good time to be interested, well, what's the underlying feeling? So having a lot, like having a story that there's a lot to do feels like this. What's the underlying feeling 
of having a lot to do, not being done, not safe to do one thing at a time with full presence. So we're not, we're avoiding the question, should I be doing multitasking? We're asking, so it's not a judgment. It's really curiosity. Well, what's that feel like? Because that, that willingness to connect and like the underlying feeling will help illuminate whether our approach is helpful, skillful or not. Because a lot of times we have ways of being, ways of relating, like multitasking that Clarissa was talking about. And we just presume it's the skillful way to go through life. Because we don't, we haven't assessed like, well, what's the damage? <laughs> like that the body and mind is walking around in a contracted state chronically. And when we really sense that more directly, the heart, heart, you know, in intuition will say something like, I don't know much, but this is not the way. This is not the way to live a human life. Basically to be living with fear, to be living with greed, to be living, to be kind of normalizing or presuming that anxiety just comes with the territory. There's really no way around anxiety, no way around fear, no way around being tight. That just is what it means to be human. I mean, there's just a lack of hu uh, humility. And we do, I think it's sort of part of our maybe modern disease, maybe it, it's older than you know our current industrialized modern state. But there's kind of an, arrogant, an arrogance around like, oh yeah, of course we're tight. That's just how it is. And, you know, people like the Buddha say things that are really provocative. There is an end to stress. And it's not about a vacation in Mexico. You know, no, because the Buddha is very explicit about this. There is an end to stress. It's unconditioned, which means it's not a function of your circumstances. You might be in poverty, you might be wealthy, you might have a beautiful body, object, you know, in terms of cultural expectations, you might have a body that's not so beautiful. But the release, the unshakable release of the heart, the Buddha says, is available. Now that's a pretty provocative thing. And we don't have to, it doesn't help to believe that, but it does help to be curious. Like, what might be in that direction? And it's really this, and it has something to do with being present, you know, this wisdom and awareness, where we get a sense, like even, as I mentioned in the guided sit, the pleasure of being present, the pleasure of not, like, just being intimate with what's arising, showing up in the moment, but not seemingly not pushed around. So we're really there. It's not like we're oblivious or disconnected. 
really there, but not pushed around by the ups and downs. I think I mentioned the eight worldly winds. Did I mention that yet? Yeah, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. I mean, you could divide it in other ways, but these are the forces that buffet, push us around. But maybe when there's success, gain, then wisdom and awareness go, oh, being successful feels like this, looks like this. It's just this nice, exciting feeling being known. Something that comes and goes when conditions are right. And then you have loss, gain and loss. Oh, loss feels like this. Praise, oh, people like me, feels like this. Insulting me, blame, blaming me. Oh, that feels like this, that looks like this. And every thing that human beings cycle through, all the different vicissitudes of life. So that's the thing is we have to get interested. And initially it's just borrowed faith, like, oh, maybe stress is optional. I'm stressed, I'm tight, I'm anxious, I'm worried about getting everything done, or whatever our particular flavor of uneasiness might be. But what we need is curiosity about that uneasiness, that stress, that anxiety, that tightness. We have to be curious, because if we're not curious, we're not going to look. Okay, I'm a tight human being. Well, this is interesting. Can I recognize this tightness as something being known? Because then, when we have some stability of present moment awareness, we'll see what's feeding, what way of relating, what attitude is feeding the tightness, and what way of relating, what attitude supports the releasing of that contraction. That's how we learn what's helpful and not helpful, skillful and not skillful. We need the continuity of present moment awareness. But we're not going to be interested if we're arrogantly convinced that you can't be a human being without being tight. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks so much, Clarissa, for sharing that with us. Other comments or questions for people in the room or people online? That looks like Rajesh. You want to go ahead and unmute yourself? Yeah, uh, thank you for the talk and meditation. Uh, if I understood you correctly, you did mention in the beginning uh, that a nice feeling during meditation or the feeling of pleasantness can help you uh, continue the practice as well as go deeper into concentration. Uh, and I, this might sound very unusual. I mean, I don't know if it makes sense or not. There are times when the feeling that arises in the body, it is both pleasant and unpleasant. And it's almost difficult to say. I, I don't know. I guess you shouldn't react to it, but there's a the feeling is unpleasant as well as pleasant. I don't know if that makes sense to you and if you have any comments on that particular situation. Yeah, no, it's an important point, Rajesh. It's subtle, but important point. And uh, one way, and this is like for all of us, so when 
like even some ordinary pain, like knee pain or back pain, or you're a little cold or something like that. But let's say the, as I think uh, Rajesh is sort of pointing to, let's say there's some really good stability of present moment awareness, some continuity, stability, balance of present moment awareness with the experience of being cold or having some back pain or being even restless. But there's that balance and that stability and continuity of present moment awareness aware of the being cold or the unpleasantness. And then we get that experience that Rajesh is pointing to where it's still clear to the awareness that being cold is unpleasant. But the stability, the not being afraid, the not uh, being distracted is pleasant. So that's, and you can notice that yourself. You know, in a funny way, or I don't know if funny is the right way to say it, uh, maybe in an unexpected way, pain is a really good concentration object because it gets the mind's attention, you know, attention, you know, the wisdom, that part of the mind that pays attention, it's naturally interested in pain. Oh, what's that? So that, keeping it in mind, that part of the practice comes easy when there's some pain. And all we have to do is be on the lookout for wanting to control the pain or being averse to the pain. So if we can be relating with interest and kindness to the pain, then we'll have that experience that Rajesh points to where concentration will develop even though we're aware of something that's unpleasant. And the concentration, the coming together, the gathering, unification of the awareness in the present moment, but we're using the truth, the reality of pain to help that gathering of the mind. So there's a real solidity, stability of that presence. Presence Stability of present moment, that's a beautiful, pleasant thing. It, it's very healing. We call it samadhi. It's probably better if you're going to keep up with your Buddhist practice just to learn that word samadhi because we don't have a good word for it in English. Concentration is not a good translation of samadhi and saying something like unification of the mind or stability of present moment awareness is kind of a mouthful, so samadhi. And it has a distinct flavor, and that distinct flavor is good. It feels good. To be present in that stable way feels good, and it's emotionally healing. It like, uh, in a very direct way, it addresses self-esteem problem. Because when we have that more stable balance, it's like, it's not so much like that pride of what I did, look at me, but there's, there's some intuition that this mind, this heart is good, is trustworthy. It's like the ultimate thing of beauty, the stable, unwavering, kind, not judging, fearless presence. 
So if we're going to be infatuated with something, you know, or, you know, fall in love, falling in love with samadhi, right? Because it's, it's onward leading. You cannot help but develop deeper wisdom if you start to value samadhi. And in that sense, as uh, one of my teachers says, our only enemy is forgetfulness or not being interested in samadhi. And it's not just when we're sitting. Sitting is just ideal conditions, our formal sitting meditation. It's just the ideal conditions to support the development and the building of momentum for samadhi. But all day long, we should be interested in samadhi like that, that stability of presence. It's just a little easier when the room is quiet and there's not, we don't have to talk. And, but, you know, we can't have formal meditation time all day long. We're going to starve. It just doesn't, not in the cards for us humans. So the rest of the day, we just do the best we can. And we just you know, use normal things like when we're walking from A to B, well, I can be present with the walking. And when we're talking to somebody, you can still be present with your bodily experience, standing there or sitting there. And you're kind of going back and forth between attending to what they're saying or what you're saying, but also taking moments just to connect with the physicality of sitting or standing or whatever your posture is. There are all kinds of tricks we'll learn. But the first step is to value present moment awareness. And the way we value it is we notice that it feels good. That's the key. Because otherwise it's theoretical that it's good. You have to sense when you get a little momentum, a little stability of present moment awareness, you have to be interested. How does this feel? Like, you're kind of sensing its moral quality, but not theoretically, but actually, oh yeah, this feels wholesome. This feels trustworthy. And that way, the confidence that builds, no one could talk you out of it because you know directly its wholesomeness. And that's what really supports our practice. So that's a good place to end tonight, you know, to make that our, our homework, to, not, not to make too big of a deal of it, but to see that distractedness and superficiality and it's a scattered mind, dull mind, restless mind. It's dangerous <laughs> and it's not pleasant. You know, it's not a useful kind of mind to have. And that stability, balance, and kind presence that's a true good friend. That's a trustworthy friend to have. And to really build the confidence that you know the difference between a mind that's not helpful and a way of being, a way of relating, a, a kind of mind that's truly helpful. And to kind of build a confidence. Okay? So we come back two more weeks. Remember to do your best to stick with it so you really get a taste of the practice Try to find time every day where you get your formal sitting, even if it has to be short, it's better than skipping it. So even a two-minute, five-minute session 
is better than thinking, oh, what's the bot, you know, why, why do it for two minutes? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.